But why is it that there are multimillionaires and the pastors of the local churches are, struggle to sometimes make ends meet? If you're in a small church, it's extremely difficult. A lot of guys are bivocational. They have second jobs on the side just to be able to supply for their family. Why is that? Well, the church is not what it needs to be because the people of God are not who they should be. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast designed to coach you up in your faith. The more you know, the more you can grow. And you live in a world that is more confusing than ever. You live in a nation where it is no longer united under a belief system that binds us together as people. And the only way to navigate a world like that is to know what you believe and why you believe it. Our goal is to give you the tools, the facts, and the perspective to think for yourself. You'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So give your best gifts ever this Christmas and become a regular listener of the Salty Pastor Podcast. My name is Jason Mayer. I'll be your host, but we cannot do this without the one, the only, the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. <laughs> Douglas Peak. The best gift ever, the Salty Pastor listenership. <laughs> That's crazy times. Hey, everybody, it's so good to be with you. You know, it's just going to be really interesting, I think, as we kind of go into this Christmas season, because with all the turmoil in the world going on right now, uh, if you're listening to this at a later date, it's uh, December 2023, and so there's a lot of upheaval going on. And so whenever you celebrate Christmas when there's you know, turmoil in the world, it always seems to hit different. It kind of has a different flavor to it. And so I'm, I'm really excited that we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I pray and hope that you get to celebrate it and that it is more meaningful and more powerful for you in your journey of faith this year than it has ever been before. And so that's what it means to grow. That's what it means to be more mature and so I hope that that's the, the experience you have this year during this Christmas season. Yes, we're in the month of December here in 2023, and we are focused here at the Salty Pastor on the birth of Jesus and how his birth ushered in a new kingdom, a kingdom that challenges the old kingdom and the kingdom of this world. If you can understand the radical challenge of the kingdom of Jesus to the existing kingdoms at that time, your faith is going to grow stronger yeah. uh, simply uh, because you see the power and strength of what you believe in a practical way. Mm. The kingdom of Jesus does have a practical impact on this world today. Yeah. And, you know, on Tuesday, we kind of explored the Old Testament prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus Christ and then Matthew's uh, Jesus statement in Matthew 12. But. All of those themes, you know, I just want to remind everybody real quick so I don't have to go and read all those passages again. But basically that the birth of Jesus was directly tied to the coming of a new kingdom. Jesus was the conduit through which this kingdom of God entered into the material world. And this new kingdom is completely built on the birth of this new king. Not just the birth of a baby named Jesus, but the birth of a king the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this new kingdom is unstoppable and uh, it will totally upend all of the earthly kingdoms uh, in, in world uh, all throughout history. If you look back, it's something that just wants to inspire awe, you know, uh, give you a sense of the overwhelming magnitude of what the birth of Christ did in the kingdom that it brought you have to realize those prophecies were written over 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago. I mean, that is a massive expanse of time. 
You know, you just think about that. When when somebody lives, you know, today, maybe to 80 or 90, you know, back then the life expectancy was a lot shorter. But my goodness, I mean, we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of years stacked on on top of each other. And so the amount of lifetimes that were lived over the last 3,500 years and to realize those prophecies were written and we have seen them come to fruition and we see them coming to fruition right now. When you look at the really, really big picture, this is something that kind of hits me. It's pretty obvious that all of the prophecies came true and are about to come true, the few that haven't. Yet you you look at how the kingdom of Jesus uh, has outlasted every single earthly kingdom that's ever existed here on the planet. I mean, it it has outlasted every form of government. It has outlasted every dictator, every tyrant king, every communist socialist entity. You know, uh, it it'll it'll outlast democracy. Uh, it it's just really amazing mm. that whatever form of human government, whatever empire that was ever built, the kingdom of Jesus has outlasted it. It has also uh, surpassed every language barrier in the world. You know, you think about that. Language is a huge barrier mm. for so many things. So many empires are built around a specific language and culture right and it has, it has transpired every language barrier barrier every cultural uh barrier it's just absolutely amazing yeah yeah and and what is to me even more amazing is that his kingdom is continually growing you know how it said there will be no end to the growth of the kingdom right. and its peace and so it's really interesting to me is that it has continued to grow over the last 2,000 years. The only place that the church of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, is not expanding is in Western Europe and America. That's about it. Everywhere else, it is growing. In China, it is growing. In Indonesia, it's growing. Africa, South America, even Iran. You think Iran, the most hostile place to Christianity, and there's a church there led by women that's growing. Uh, the kingdom of Jesus is unstoppable. We talked about, you know, at Caesarea uh, Philippi, where Peter gave his confession of faith, and Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. You know, it will not stop it. In all of its various forms, you look at Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and various forms of Protestantism, uh, it is pushing almost 50% of the world's, the global population of the world. I mean, that, those two things alone, that the, the prophecies that were written over 3,000 years ago have come to fruition, and we've seen it, and how it is prophesied there will be no end to its growth and no end to its expanding peace. And it's just amazing to me that we're still seeing happen what they prophesied 3000 years ago about the kingdom of Jesus. Yeah. I think, I mean, short of like music and dance, like there's not many things that have transcended cultural and, and language yeah. barriers more than Christianity, right? That's like right. we, 
we see, you know, this, these kind of universal languages of like music or dance and things of that nature that everyone can kind of innately understand. But outside mm -hmm. of that, there's a lot of cultural divides that keep things from crossing cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Other than maybe McDonald's fries at this point. But like, I mean, Christianity yeah. has done that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's continuing to grow. And I think that's an amazing testament to this prophecy we read about where it says it will be unending. It will continue to grow. It will eventually basically be all across the planet, right? We'll yeah. see a mountain as um, consume the planet, basically. Yeah, it will just keep going you know and you remember we read the the prophecy in daniel mm, where yeah. it says he saw the rock come up without help without any hands yeah. helping it and it hit all those earthly kingdoms and it destroyed them all and then the divine kingdom the kingdom of jesus starts right and there's no end to it and so it's really quite amazing what's going on i, I think what's happening too is you know, a lot of people don't realize is that when sin entered into the world through the fall and then Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden, you know, it says that there were cherubim and seraphim set to protect the garden. And I think I think what the intent of that statement is to say that there was a hard break between the spiritual and the material kind of in that, you know, and, and you can't cross into the spiritual now until you die. Right. Right. That you have to die in order to leave the material world. But what's happening is that when Jesus came, he brought those back. That's why we're not, you know, there was a, a heresy in the church early on called Gnosticism. And it was, it kind of, I believe it flowed out of that Socratic uh, idealism, the Platonic uh, dualism, mm. uh, this notion that there's a complete separation between the spirit realm and the material or physical realm. And so... Uh, in Christianity early on, there was, they called it Gnosticism, was a heresy. But what's really interesting is when Jesus came, is that the kingdom of God just didn't come into our midst spiritually, but it came into our midst physically as well. And there's implications there. You know, now we've talked about the implications of what it's not in our last series, you know, about dominion theory and the Benedict option and all these different approaches. But, but, it still does have a massive influence in the physical realm as well as in the spiritual realm. And I, I think that's kind of the point of why Jesus said when he taught us how to pray, that pray to God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in the physical material world as it is in heaven in the spiritual realm. So there's, my point is, is it's coming together, mm. right? Slowly over time, we see it coming more and more together and is that why I'm, I don't know, but some of the prophetic statements that we read is that, that once the gospel has spread to every corner of the earth, and that is when the, 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 the next kingdom, the physical kingdom comes back here on earth. So it's interesting that we're in this great in between, right? Mm -hmm. We're, uh, not quite there yet, but it started and it's growing, but it's not to the point where it, Jesus comes back and, and establishes the total spiritual and earthly kingdom as it was meant to be in the garden of Eden. So he returns us to paradise. And so the question is, is that what do we do now that we're in between? Uh, right. The we, rock's been thrown, but we're not at the point where the mountain has grown. Yeah. So what do we do? Do we just, do we ignore it? Do we, do we hide from it? But I, I think, you know, what we do, what we think the energy and effort that we put into growing the kingdom of God right now and helping it expand makes a massive difference. 
It makes a massive difference, not only for his kingdom, but for the type of life that we live right now. You know, there's a lot of people that are concerned about what is happening in our world today, and rightly so. I think they should be. Uh, There's been a lot of question about uh, what should we as Christians do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Or if if we try and do something, will it actually make any difference? Because, you know, you Mm -hmm. hate doing something and then it has no impact. And I know a lot of people are like, well, why try? It makes no difference, right? That's not good. But if you look back, if you really look back and see the Roman world as it was when Christ was born, it was a 100% pagan world. No one today has any really understanding of how different the world was when Jesus was born. We, we, if we were transported back in time and we lived there and we saw what was going on and you read, you know, the, the daily Roman inquirer, you know, tablet of the daily news, we, we would be absolutely shocked the closest thing that we have to it is what's happening in the Middle East right now. There's a group of Muslims who call themselves Hamas, and they are supported over by over 60 to 70 percent of their population, right? Well, and as we go to talk about Hamas, I'm, I know you like to bring up some things that they've done. So if you've got kids that are also listening to this podcast in the general area, this might be a time to uh, cover their ears or listen yeah, to sing this a at song. a separate time. <laughs> uh, just because I know that some of the tragedies that um, and and horrendous things that Hamas has done, you got to talk about to understand how bad yeah. they are. But we want to make sure that if you do have littles that are like to listen to the Salty Pastor with you, this is probably not the time for them to listen. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is Hamas is in control of Gaza. They are the government and they were voted into power by their people. There is no difference between the civilian population and the Hamas. Right. Because the civilian population, whenever they're uh, surveyed, say they are overwhelmingly in support of what Hamas has done. Right. And many of the civilian population housed many of the hostages. Hamas, you know, crossed into another country, attacked civilians. They brutally raped women. They murdered children, including babies. They took, the, they took other women and girls, right, and even baby as hostages, which is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. They then raped those women and abused those women in in incredible ways. Now they don't want to release them as hostages because the, the women are testifying to how they were treated. And it, and since then, uh, I even read today, I'd like to confirm this, is that some of the w- women that have been released as hostages have tried to take their own lives because it was just so horrific what happened to them, right? And so this this behavior of Hamas is not only barbaric, it's evil beyond belief. It's this ideology, this belief, um, uh, the things that they're doing is, is what the kingdom of God is expressly designed to defeat. Mm. It is meant to defeat that evil. And we have people in America who actually support this behavior. They're marching in our streets. Uh, people who actually don't think that what Hamas has done is wrong and they are justified in doing it okay we have protests in cities like new york philadelphia chicago where supporters of palestine support what hamas did and call for the express genocide of the jewish people 
These same people that have supported these things and marched in these things have participated in the support of groups that have targeted Christians globally and unleashed the greatest persecution of Christians worldwide since the Roman persecution of Christians in the first and second century. You know, what we're seeing today in these protests and what these people are doing, what we're seeing Hamas do and what's happening in Gaza, that's what the entire Roman world was like. Mm. They, they, th- this ideology reflects the exact pagan values that Rome had, and that is the slaughter of other people for any reason or excuse, the enslavement of any other people for any excuse for your own people is completely and 100% justified. And so this is the world in which Jesus was born, and this is the world that the kingdom of God is intended to defeat, this barbaric evil that is going on. And what, what I think is happening now is we, we have these massive protests on college campuses where people are calling for the genocide of Jewish people. You know, they, they play word games, but everybody knows 100% what they're saying means it means when you say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You are advocating for the genocide of the Jewish people that they're, you don't want to ethnically cleanse them. You want to murder all of them. So what is this saying is that how in the world are we returning to this pagan value system in the world today? I'll tell you what it means. The reason why is because secularism has failed. There was this belief that took root in the 50s and 60s of America, and it was a, that we, America was a secular nation, that we, would, we could come together with diverse religions, diverse belief systems, and live together under one roof, and everybody get along. Out of that came that famous coexist bumper sticker that has all these different religions and ideologies represented in it. And it's this notion, this high-minded notion, people who, who put those bumper stickers on their car, if you have a conversation with them, which I've had numerous conversations with them, and I ask them, well, what exactly do you think that means? And he goes, well, we just need to all live in peace. All religions are basically the same. That's secularism, and secularism is inept stupidity. And that's exactly what it has done, is brought this barbaric evil return of paganism into America again. And we are suffering now. We are suffering the result of this elitist, secular, progressive ideology. And it has embraced the demon, the demonic forces of evil, and now it has no response to these demonic forces of evil that are going on in Israel. Uh, Here's a perfect example. This is just astounding to me every time I watch it. Here is a video of the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania. They are asked to testify before Congress on the rise of anti-Semitism. And one of uh, the Congress... men, she's a female, Stephanie, asks some just straightforward questions. And just says simply, if someone is calling for the genocide of Jewish people, is that considered wrong by your code of ethics? And she's asking this question because these universities and these university uh, presidents have pushed this notion of uh, creating safe spaces for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so they have these extensive code of ethics and bullying and harassment uh, codes 
that you're required to sign on and follow when you become a part of the student body, right? So it's blatantly clear that you're not allowed to do this. But listen to their responses when she asks them about it. Let's listen to this video. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. So what, what you're seeing here is, what's remarkable to me is their inability to just answer a simple question. And the question she's getting at is, is this, is that, is it a violation of your Code of Conduct, right? Mm -hmm. And they refuse to say it. And they, you know, she has to badger them into getting them any admittance to it. And you're like, why are they doing this? Well, I'll tell you why they're doing it is because the people today that are doing it are camped out on their campuses and they're doing nothing about it. They're doing nothing about the harassment of Jewish students. They're, they're sending emails to Jewish students saying, you guys should hide and you guys need to stay in your dorms, you know, this, this is what's happening. The inability to say that calling for the genocide of any group of people violates their code of conduct proves they have become a morally bankrupt system. That is secular progressivism at face value. Yeah, I think when the leaders of the greatest institutions 
have no morals, then I think, I mean, when their clarity of their morals, I can't assume that they have no morals, but when the clarity of their morals is so lost, yeah, that they well, have I don't, to try I to don't think you're or, wrong in wondering if they have any morals at all because they are incapable of communicating clarity on yeah, any moral states. Right. And so, and they're tiptoeing around the things. I mean, it's just the fact that they can't even be like, yes, that is a problem. Yes, that should be addressed. That obviously shows that there's a major issue. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of that happening even outside of the institutions, right? Like the world has become that way of, well, my truth is my truth. So it's like, well, as long as it doesn't expressly do blank to blank to blank to blank to blank to you, I get to do whatever I want. And how do you think, you know, those uh, presidents are reflecting this verbiage, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how did they become presidents of the university? In other words, are they the only individual at that uni- that university that thinks this way? Or were they elected and put in that position because the majority of the professors and the people there think this way? Right. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a real problem. That is a huge problem. So what else are you thinking, Pastor? Well, I was just thinking that people have to step back and look through a lens of thousands of years to see what's really going on here, you know? And it really brings it down into what's happening in our society since the 30s is this is all orchestrated. What you're seeing playing out right now is orchestrated by cultural Marxists out of the Frankfurt School of Critical Social Theory. It it always starts, step one is you must destabilize the civilization, stabilize the society in order to overthrow it, right? To come in and have a revolution, to take control. And so how, how do you destabilize society? Just look at what happened. You know, first what they do is they lock down everybody, right? They quarantine everybody. And it started out as, Hey, for two weeks, we're going to lock everything down and slow the curve. So we don't overwhelm our healthcare system. Right. And so what happened is two weeks became two years, you know, during that period of time, you know, a lot of people are unaware of this, is that that's where the Black Lives Matter movement started, right? And the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement specifically said, we are trained Marxist. This is what we're trying to do. And what they wanted to do, their demand was defund the police, defund the police, defund the police. So they defunded police. So you have weakened the peacekeeping agencies out there, or at the very least, you've neutered them so that they're not willing to do anything about these protests, right? Secondly, you force in the name of diversity, uh, the nation and these universities to bring in radicalized individuals as professors and then as students. Okay. Then what you do is you mobilize them on campuses. Cops aren't able to do anything about it as people run through the streets, screaming homicidal statements against Jewish people, attacking their businesses, chasing them down the streets, defacing their their dorm rooms and their their gathering rooms, uh, defacing and vandalizing their synagogues, the the businesses that are owned by them, not only on university campus, but in, in these major cities, all with the express goal of creating conflict. This is the strategy. This is the ultimate proof that secularism has failed because secularism has given 
the cultural Marxists and the revolutionaries uh, uh, inroads into our society. And now our most important institutions, uh, the peacekeepers, our judicial system, yea, even our universities are unable to have any moral clarity on how to deal with it, right? Zero moral clarity. This is the ultimate proof that secularism has failed, that paganism is back and paganism is completely inept. When this is happening in America and the presidents of our most famous universities can't even denounce genocidal statements against Jewish people as being bullying and harassing, right? Uh, what we see now is that secularism is the new paganism. Secularism is the new paganism. We right now are creating a new Rome. And that Rome that viciously persecuted Christians. And even though the kingdom of Jesus defeated the early Roman Empire, no matter how hard they tried to stamp out Christianity, it was a long and painful process with intense suffering. And we can, we can turn that tide in order to expand the kingdom of God right now, right here, you know. Uh, we don't have to wait, but we have to stand up and start doing something about it. That's what the salty pastor is about, is to try to call a salty crew of people who say, yeah, we're, we're not signing up for this. We're not going to sit idly by while we watch, you know, uh, the greatest country in the world fade into the night. You know, we're not going to do it. We're going to stand up. We're tired of bowing down and it's time to stand up up and stand tall. You know, what's sad about it is this, is Christians in the past have just let things slide. These universities, these Ivy League universities were built by Christians. The land was given to them by Christians to train ministers of the gospel. Princeton, Yale, Harvard, even Columbia, all started by denominations of Christians all started for the sole purpose of training ministers to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The buildings built were funded by Christians. The libraries were started by books donated by Christian ministers. Uh, the buildings actually constructed by Christians. Guess what? You walk around the campus today, you walk around Harvard, and there are Bible verses carved into the stones of the building. You know, and when I was there, I took pictures of them. I go, this is unbelievable. And yet what's happened today is these are the places that hate Christians. They hate clear morals, and they have adopted secular humanism. And what they brought is paganism back into our land, and that is eating the soul of America. It is a cancer, and we have to be aware of it and aware of what they are trying to do to our nation. So we can make a difference, but the question is really, how do we do it? So give me a last minute, little brief, how do we make a difference? Well, I think one of the things that's happened is is that Satan has kind of redirected our efforts and our attention in through prosperity. And that is we in America have become very prosperous people, right? Now, it's also true that it takes a lot of money to live in America. It's not cheap, right? right? So you have to be prosperous if you want to live. Like, you know, if you want to rent a two-bedroom apartment in the Treasure Valley, it's going to cost you 1500 bucks a month, At right? At least. At least, right? You know, well, you you can get a two-bedroom apartment in Argentina for about 350 bucks. you know? Right. But, but it's a, you know, borderline third world collapsed economy country. And so, yeah, you can get places that are a lot cheaper. But so it is expensive to live here, but... We are very, very prosperous. But what has happened is 
is that the church has to walk fully in the power of the new kingdom and preach the kingdom and or, or otherwise we're going to continue to see this slide and secondly what we do makes a difference we need to do all we can to see our churches become the center the foundation the wellspring for which everything else happens and what has happened today is we've got distracted with our prosperity right and it's like for instance let me say some really salty things right now is that I have a lot of pastor friends, right? Mm-hmm. I know, I, you know, I know probably a hundred guys off the top of my list, right? Every one of those guys, okay, have worked their whole life, dedicated themselves to the church, and many of them had to really scrape in order to send their kids to college. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not a Ivy League, you know, dumpster fire school, but like to to go to seminary or someplace like that, right? A Bible college or something like that. So they really had to push and, and to save for that, you know, but we've got uh, people who sing music for a living, right? Right. You know, like Lauren Daigle, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Amy Grant, all these people. And I'm not bemoaning their their success. I'm not bemoaning their singing gifts that they give to God. But why is it that their multimillionaires and the pastors of the local churches are a struggle to sometimes make ends meet? If you're in a small church, it's extremely difficult. A lot of guys are bivocational. They have second jobs on the side just to be able to supply for their family. Why is that? Well, the church is not what it needs to be because the people of God are not who they should be. Mm -hmm. 50% of Christians in America give zero to their church. Wow. 50%. And, and so less than 20% of Christians, people who claim to follow Christ, practice any form of a tithe, which is just a regular habit of generosity to God and his mm-hmm. kingdom. But they'll, they'll buy Christian music, they'll buy Christian clothes, they'll buy Christian sneakers. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. want to go to Christian concerts. They want to do all of these kinds of things. And, and, so, and, and then they sit back and they go, why is our society on such a slide? Well, that's the reason why is because the church is the wellspring of the kingdom of Jesus. That's where Jesus said, this is my bride. This is my church. This is where my kingdom emanates from. I'm not saying those things are bad and to stop paying or funding those things. I'm just saying when we neglect the most important thing and we spend it on the peripheral things, the whole thing collapses and becomes weak. And that's a problem. So I think in order for us to restore the church to the strength and power of the kingdom of God is solely dependent upon how many people in the church say, I want my church to be the strongest entity and organization in the community in which I live. I want it to have more influence. I want it to have more, uh, uh, growth. I want it to have more resources than any other nonprofit, any other institution in my community, right? And when that happens, guess what? The kingdom of God not only makes a difference spiritually in the lives of people, but it makes a massive difference here in the physical material world in the quality of life that we live. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Pastor, for sharing all that with us. I thank you listeners for joining us today. Uh, make sure you tune in this Sunday. We're doing the second uh, message in our King of Kings series here at Foothills. And uh, until next time, be blessed. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.